Hello, you're listening to 10 by 9s 100th podcast. <laughs> 10 by 9 is a live event where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. And to celebrate our podcast century, we have five stories for you from Belfast, Port Stewart and one from our friends in Adelaide. We've so many events coming up over the summer that you've no excuse for not getting to a 10 by 9. You can find all the info on our website or our social media feeds. More about that later, but first, let's get to the stories. The theme was once when I was young. The location was the black box in Belfast, and it was a May evening when first-timer Kate Burns went to the mic. For Brian Adams, it was the summer of 69. But for me, it will always be the summer of 79. 40 years ago... In July 1979, we headed off in our own indomitable style, as the song goes, to look for America. We had got married not long before. We were young, carefree and child-free, with not an ounce of caution or sense between us. We knew we wanted to do an east-west trip. We had six weeks, a tight budget, a bit of planning and loads of youthful self-belief. We booked our flights and little else, and off we went. Back then, Jimmy Carter was president, and there was an oil crisis due to the Iranian Revolution. The price of crude oil had doubled, and long queues rolled out at the gas stations. Fuel was rationed, but we planned to travel mostly by Greyhound bus, so that didn't faze us at all. In the early part of the trip, the only time we had an incident when it was when a pimp propositioned me in Port Authority bus station. <laughs> Paul had left me standing with the luggage while he queued for tickets. I can still see his huge cloak and wide-brimmed hat and hear his distinct accent as he asked me, was I all alone, and offered to help me out. The memory is evocative of the Lou Reed song, Waiting for My Man because I stuttered and pointed in the direction of my man, the pale-looking Irish guy in the white socks and sandals. <laughs> in my naivety, I thought it was funny, and we added it to the repertoire of stories that we collected as we travelled. And so we took in Boston, New York and Washington, fulfilling our ambition of singing Simon and Garfunkel's America as we crossed the New Jersey Turnpike. We then headed west to San Francisco, the Grand Canyon, Yosemite National Park, Las Vegas and Los Angeles before heading home. We stayed in hotels and motels and boarding houses, log cabins, rooms to let beside railway tracks and rooms above all-night flashing neon shop signs. We swam in rivers and hiked up mountains, hired bicycles and walked for miles, taking in the sights and saving on our limited funds. We got called in by the Coast Guard for swimming when the red flag was up. We camped in the forest thinking that the warning signs for bears were, well, probably only a precaution. We lost our luggage in San Francisco and we climbed over the fence in the Grand Canyon to get a better photograph. We ate in diners and roadside cafes and we rationed our purchases. We grew brown and pretty thin under the hot summer sun and we called home only occasionally to reassure our poor parents that we were alive and well. There was only once that we, were, that we really genuinely felt we were in trouble, and that was because, well, 
we really genuinely were. <laughs> As the adventure neared its conclusion, we decided to splash out and hire a car to get us from Yosemite National Park across the Nevada desert to Las Vegas. We took to the road in a red two-door Cadillac, purchased the ration supply of fuel, and off we went. The endless line of roadway cut a hypnotic swathe through the desert landscape, running forever towards a horizon that seemed to recede further the more we travelled towards it. We did pass the occasional car, and we wondered at a helicopter following the line of the road above us. That was until a patrol car appeared out of nowhere, siren, blazing, lights flashing, and he pulled us in for speeding. I can still see the officer in my mind's eye. He was short and stocky, and he carried the biggest rifle I'd ever seen. Well, actually, the only rifle I'd ever seen. He took our license and our car keys, and he told us he'd be back, and then he left us in the hot desert sun. Eventually, he returned and lectured us on being guests in the country and respecting their laws. When he finally let us go with a warning, we drove chastened and very slowly onwards, stopping only to pick up a hitchhiker who we find sitting at the side of the road. Now, hindsight and age bring great wisdom, and maybe that wasn't our most sensible move either, but he turned out to be an innocent Norwegian student who ditched his earlier lift when the guy he travelled with revealed he was really an alien. <laughs> and wisely he thought he'd be better taking his chances with someone from Earth. <laughs> Us. <laughs> so, God love him. Our, our next stop was Scottish Junction, or so it said on the roadmap. It was a small town at a crossroads with a gas station. At least it had one until it had burned down some time previously. When we got there, it was derelict and in ruins. We had no chance of topping up our fuel, and we didn't have enough to complete the journey to Las Vegas. It slowly dawned on us that this time we were well and truly in trouble. Not knowing what else to do, we decided to drive on until the last of the fuel was gone and wait for our friendly police officer to find us. We had little supplies of food and drink, and the heat outside reminded me of opening an oven door with my face in way too close. It was all consuming and dry and intense. We willed the car on those last few miles, all three of us sitting in silent panic, watching the fuel gauge slip further into the red. After what seemed like an age, I spotted a homestead in the distance, off a track running away from the main highway. Paul reasoned that no one would live this far out into the desert without their own fuel supply, so we all agreed to take our chances and head towards the house. As the car moved into the yard at the front of the house, the door opened, and out came an elderly man in oversized denim dungarees and a pig cap. He leaned his frame back on the porch, folded his arms, and pushed the cap further up his forehead to get a better look at us. Then unfolding his arms, he straightened up, obviously deciding we posed no immediate threat. Everything seemed to be in slow motion. We got out of the car, the Norwegian student and I standing motionlessly by, by the door, while Paul, with his easy Irish charm, moved in to greet him, explaining our predicament. The old man continued to look us over, saying nothing until Paul finished talking, and we all held our breath. Presently he said, You're from Belfast. I'd never forget that accent. 
I didn't think I'd ever hear it again. Now, I had considered the possibility of a number of different responses to her request for help, but I hadn't expected this one. And it was his turn to talk, and what he said fascinated us. During the Second World War, he was one of 120,000 US troops stationed in Belfast, and he had been young and homesick. In 1944, he left to fight in the Normandy landings. He survived the war, but he never went back to Northern Ireland. He told us that back then, someone had been kind to him, and he wouldn't forget it. Because of that, he was only too willing to provide us with the fuel we needed. He was returning a kindness he never thought he would have the opportunity to repay. Walking across to the back of the house, he beckoned us to drive the car towards him. There, by an outhouse, was a single solitary fuel pump. A man of few words, he took no money from us as he filled the tank and sent us on our way. The fuel he used to service the farming equipment was not really suitable for a Cadillac. <laughs> so, chugging, stalling, and backfiring, we finally made it safely to Las Vegas. Grateful to someone at home whose kindness to a US serviceman years before had rescued us from the hot desert sun in the summer of 79. We completed the trip without further incident, and shortly before flying home, I realized I was pregnant. In the words of Brian Adams, those were the best days of my life. Okay, one small question. That was 1979, and you had never seen a rifle? <laughs> Where did you grow up, kid? A wonderful story from first-timer Kate Burns. Now, we don't often indulge ourselves, but it's a special occasion, so here are two stories, back-to-back, -back, both told at Flowerfield Art Centre in Port Stewart in May, when the theme was the first time. The second story is from Podrig, and the first is from me. The first time I ever saw someone who looked like me, I was in my 30s. There they were, smiling out of a photo at my brother's wedding. My mum, who's a spitting image of me from the eyes up. My dad, a small, pot-bellied man, two brothers, two sisters, all with some sort of resemblance to me, and I was someone only two people in that photo knew even existed. That photo answered quite a lot of nagging questions for me, but not all of them. It's quite common, apparently, for children who are adopted and know little or nothing about their beginnings to fantasize about their origins. Was my mother a princess? Could she be famous? Uh, could she be a movie star? Might my father have been a hero, a footballer? I honestly don't remember ever doing that. I knew little about my beginnings. I knew it was somewhere around Oma, and that's that. And as I grew up with two pretty amazing parents who showed a lot of love to all of us, I never felt the need to imagine another life. But when I was in my late 20s, I decided I wanted to know more about me. It wasn't a burning sense of great em emptiness that you often see dramatized on TV. It was just curiosity. How and why did I end up as I did? Did baldness run in the family? Do we all get heart attacks and die at 45? Does fat run in our genes? So I got in touch with social services and they sent me the information they had from my file. I was born in Oma General Hospital, weighed seven pounds, eight ounces, and I was bottle fed. My biological mother lived in the area and her mother, my grandmother, 
had arranged for me to go to Fawn pending my mother's marriage to my father. I was baptized and then shipped off to Fawn on July the 12th. Fourteen months later, I went to live with Tony and Anna in Derry. That was great, so much information, and yet so many gaps and so many questions. If I was due to return to my biological parents, why hadn't I? What had happened? And so began several years on and off at the public records office. It was not easy. I had very few names to work with. And a common surname, Kelly, that's about as common as any other name in Tyrone. I won't use my biological mother's Christian name, but it was as common as the name Mary without being the name Mary. But I will call her Mary for the purposes of this story. So I knew I was baptized in Oma, so I rang the church to ask for my baptismal lines. They refused, saying they couldn't. And I was pretty sure that was not true and was actually against the law to withhold them. So I went to social services and they contacted the parish priest and his name I will use. He's Father Murray. He was Father Murray. He told social services that the family were ultra respectable and wouldn't appreciate me making contact. He said, as far as he was aware, Mary had never married and still lived in the area. And I thought, wow, ultra respectable. Not just ordinary respectable, ultra respectable. Wouldn't appreciate contact. Well, I thought about that a lot. What if they didn't want to know? I don't think it would have bothered me that much, but I was very conscious of possibly opening wounds that maybe had healed, causing problems. At the same time, I had gone too far to turn back now. And given that Father Murray had refused to hand over the baptismal lines and lied about that, well, I thought, fuck you, Father Murray. After some more digging in the electoral roll and in the marriage records, I discovered Mary had got married. She had got married two months after I was born to, I presumed, my father. A bit more digging, and I discovered I had what they call an Irish twin, a brother born 11 months after me, nine months after their wedding. So now that explained everything. Their second child was born within wedlock and was respectable. And so the second born became the first born and the first born was out of the picture. He had to take his chances in the care system. Now, I would like to remind you, I wasn't angry. I had no bitterness whatsoever. I was actually pleased the way things worked out for me, but there were unanswered questions. So with Father Murray's warning, and his lies ringing in my ears, I wrote a letter to my biological mother saying who I was, that it would be nice to meet up. I hope her life had worked out well and that I was pretty happy with my life. If she wasn't interested, well, that would be fine too. I got a very enthusiastic reply from her daughter-in-law because apparently Mary was too emotional to write. Yes, she wanted to meet up, and so it was arranged. So we met up, my biological parents and my Irish twin brother and then the story poured out. They got married with the intention of collecting me from the home in Fawn. They were planning to go to America, but then Sarah was pregnant again. And here's where the villain of the story returns, and if you hadn't already guessed, it's Father Murray.
Now, I didn't want there to be a villain in my origin story, and I really hoped if there were a villain, it wouldn't be a member of the church because the nuns and fawn had done so much for me. But this was 1960s rural Tyrone, where Father Murray held great sway. He had convinced my grandmother, the one who had arranged for me to go to Fawn temporarily, that I was a product of sin, of which I am very proud, I have to say. <laughs> but because I was a product of sin, I couldn't be in the house with the other baby, a child conceived within the holy bonds of matrimony. And why did you go along with that? I asked. But there really was no answer, and I understood the powerlessness of their position. And I certainly didn't bear any grudge towards my grandmother, despite what happened. When I met her, she was very elderly, very kind, and a few years later, I went to see her on her deathbed, and I kissed her goodbye. But Father Murray, hmm, Father Murray. I would love to say I confronted him, told him what I thought of him, not just because of his manipulations in the 60s, because, but because he had clearly told several barefaced lies especially when he said Mary had never married. He lied about the family being ultra-respectable. They're no more and no less respectable than anyone else, and they all welcomed me without hesitation. But I didn't confront him. I hate confrontation, and he died a few years back. Despite Father Murray's efforts, I did find out that longevity runs in the family. So too does baldness, and there is a fat gene in there somewhere. That I could see from the wedding photo in my hand, the photo where I saw someone who looked like me for the very first time. The first time I went to my mother's prayer group was the only time I went to my mother's prayer group. I was home in our village in Cork, and my mother was asking me what I was up to on a Wednesday night. Now, my mother rarely asks a question directly. Really, what she does is she starts considering a question about five minutes before she sees you. So by the time you come into the room, she's pretty much at the end of the inquiry. And on this particular evening, she was up to form. Anyway, are you interested? Interested in what, Mum? Coming along, for God's sake. Coming along where? Weren't you listening? To what? Never mind. If you told me what you were asking me, I might be able to answer, well, you wouldn't be interested. By this stage, I, who had left home the minute I turned 18, was beginning to feel guilty, so I was pretty much amenable to being uh, manipulated. So, go on, I said, I might be interested. My rosary group are meeting tonight. Oh, God. So that's what saw me in a car with my mother on a Wednesday night, driving along a 50-mile-an-hour road at her preferred rate of 25 miles an hour, just enough, enough to push second gear into a soft whining sound. So we got to the prayer group. It was around May time, the month of Mary. There was a fireplace in the room, and there was a fire in it, lit. And there was an electric fire in the room too, also plugged in, just in case there was a gas fire on, but it only had one bar lit. Thank God. So we were there drinking tea. I was a third of the age of everybody in the room, and they were all delighted at Anne's capacity to bring in a young fella. And you wanted to come along to the rosary group tonight, did you? Yes, I lied. It was easier. The rosary began, except the rosary didn't begin. The pre-rosary began. This is not at all like foreplay. This is much like taking an inventory before a long picnic. 
they discussed the needs to be covered in the prayers. They discussed whether the divine mercy was the best thing to do, seeing as it was a Wednesday. Somebody asked whether, even though it was a Wednesday, we couldn't still pray the sorrowful mysteries of the rosaries because the sorrowful mysteries were their favorite mysteries. And then they returned to the needs of the people to be prayed for. They discussed who died. Then they discussed who'd known who had died. Ah, you know her. The one with the hair that's a bit thin. Sits at the back of mass. Oh, the one with the hair that was a bit thin. That's the one. 9 a.m. mass, the very one. What about her? She died. Oh, God love her. We should include her soul in our prayers. She was very holy. God, she was. Mass every day. Sad story. God love her. And on and on and on. <laughs> then they asked about me. Where are you now? Living in the big city? Oh, yes, Cork City. God almighty, can you imagine? No, actually, Dublin City, I was saying. Dublin City? They said it like I was living in downtown Manhattan instead of a grotty house in Drumcondra with bad water and ineffective heating. Imagine a boy like you from your village in Dublin City. Eventually, the rosary began. I was actually relieved when it began. Five long decades to go, and we were indeed launching into the prayers proper. It was a hot rosary. It was a mixture between Bikram yoga, a seance, and a stationary workout. <laughs> Needless to say, my mother fell asleep between the third and the fourth mysteries of the rosary. I looked across the haze of the room, and mum was happily snoozing and snoring in the corner. And this is when it happened. As my mother was sleeping, one of the women, right in the midst of the rosary, suddenly announced, St. Joseph is here. So it definitely was like a seance. Everybody stopped. Nobody except me seemed surprised. She hadn't pointed exactly to where St. Joseph was, but apparently everybody was supposed to know. So we looked at her. She was perfectly content to be the center of attention. I wondered what we should do, and she continued. St. Joseph is here. And then she looked at me, and she said, and he's here for you. Now, by this stage, my mother had woken up, and she wasn't in the least bit surprised to find that St. Joseph had joined us. Apparently, it was a regular haunt of his on a Wednesday evening in Cork. St. Joseph is here, and he's here for you, and he's here for you because you have a gift, she said, looking at me. Now, this was all getting a little bit much, but truth to be told, I was a little bit excited. <laughs> he's here for you because you have a gift. The gift that you have is the reason he's here. The gift that you have is to be kind. Now, I was really disappointed, honestly. <laughs> I wanted to say the following. Look, for God's sake, you've just told me that I've got a gift and I've been excited. And now you've told me that St. Joseph himself, the adopted father of Jesus, had been sent like a dignitary from the divine down to your overcrowded, overheated prayer meeting in which I'm only in attendance because of my mother's Olympic capacities to manipulate me. Furthermore, St. Joseph himself, a man of few words, has finally been given something to say as if he's announcing something to me about a gift and I'm excited because I've been reading Lord of the Rings and all those other books and it's only the shy, quiet ones like me who have the great task and even though most heroes in books are orphans, I can arrange that here and now <laughs> to be an orphan. So in the name of all that is good, holy, and dramatic, give St. Joseph something interesting to talk about. That's what I wanted to say, but I didn't. I said, oh, right, I'm supposed to be kind. Thanks very much. There was nothing else to say. It downplayed every dramatic turn in me, but I suppose it was a lovely reminder about what really matters. 
Anyway, we resumed the rosary, and when it was over, there was weak tea and strong scones. And there was more discussion about who was dead and who was dying and who was sick and who was sad and went to meet up for a cup of tea. As we were heading home, I said to mum that it was interesting that St. Joseph had turned up out of his historical obscurity to pay a visit and pass on a small piece of advice to me. Oh, Eileen, have a great gift of discerning the saints, mum said. Is that what you call it? I said, what do you mean? She asked. I changed tack. This wasn't going well. Did you have a nice sleep, I asked, somewhere around the third mystery of the Sorrowful Mysteries? That wasn't a sleep at all, Podrick, she said. That's a holy sleep. It's the kind that comes over you when you're in prayer and you fall asleep, and when you wake up, you feel very refreshed. <laughs> That's called a snooze, Mum. It's not, she said, slowing the car down dramatically. We drove home the rest of the way in silence. Her, after her holy sleep, and me, desperate to get back to the city after my first and final time at her prayer group. We've had Cindy Lauper appear in one of our stories, but I think St. Joseph trumps even that. Now let's go to Australia and to Adelaide. The theme was the kindness of strangers and it was April at the Jade Cafe. Here's Jan Zeven. When the baby came, it derailed her life. It had been such a long wait, all of those months of thinking, wishing and trying. After she watched her body blossom and felt the ecstasy of mysterious pings, tings and wriggles of the quickening, after her breasts and belly burgeoned and she became a behemoth, after the wriggling turned into obvious escape attempts, and after a night of visceral, primeval pain and power, the baby came. The happy hormones did their job, but she wept anyway, in joy and wonder at the beautiful of the life, which just seconds after leaving her, with its sprawling little fingers and toes, looked too big to have ever fit in there. She lay awake, staring at him, marvelling that this human had its own thoughts and feelings. Her partner breathed deeply beside her, softly snoring in the amber lights. She was so wide awake, she didn't even poke him to wake him up. Her head was reeling, every impulse filling her with the distinct feeling that she was not up to the job ahead. Their footsteps echoed in the hallway of their home. The baby slept in his capsule. But it wasn't the house. Uh, she looked around their home, every inch familiar and alien all at once. But it wasn't the house that had changed. It was her. When the baby came, she gave birth to a child and a mother. She knew nothing about how to look after either of them. She looked at her husband. What do we do now? Let's have a coffee, he replied, and busied himself at the espresso machine. Her question was so much bigger than the answer he gave, but her eyes filled with tears in that moment of kindness. The simple pleasure of sitting together with coffee. She knows now that she'd taken a lot of kindness for granted before this time in her life. 
She didn't know then she'd come to savour the crumbs, to add up all the little kindnesses and pull them into something which felt bigger and able to give succour. Because once the relatives and friends had visited once or twice and her husband went back to work, she found herself feeling quite alone. She loved the baby and cared for him and kept him alive. She tolerated his dependence on her physical presence and felt useless and rejected when the breastfeeding wasn't working out very well. She put all her efforts into taking care of the baby and was stern with the young mother. She was so inept. Walking to familiar places, she felt like a stranger in a strange land. She watched the water regularly. The smell of the salt and the sound of the sea anchored her to the real world. Everything was silvery grey. It was one of those days she couldn't quite tell where the sea ended and the sky began. It seemed that everything was moving except the sea, which lay there unnoticed. She felt it was a metaphor for her new life. But on the way home, she saw the Greek lady. The Greek lady had seen her walking often during pregnancy, and she was always kind to her. She spoke excitedly to the baby, saying to the young mother, Don't worry, I speak in Greek. She brought a smile to the young mother's lips. She hadn't thought it was gobbledygook. The Greek lady was active. She was small and wiry, but like a little bird seemed to tremble with life. The young mum knew she needed to walk and feel the air outside. She came to see the Greek lady out and about most days. They spoke about the weather, about how much the baby was growing, and about the Greek lady's children too. They were grown, of course. Her boy lived in Melbourne playing soccer. She didn't see him as much as she'd like to because he was too busy, too busy. Before sadness could creep into her dark little bird's eyes, she'd throw up her hands and say, Ah, what God wants, and walk on. At the fruit shop, the fruit ladies all cooed at the baby and inquired after the young mother. It was often the only adult conversation she'd have. She ate up the tiny portions of laughter, compliments kindly given and accepted in goodwill, talking about shop lady things like the weather or their produce. The young mum came to hate the night times. Getting the baby to sleep was such a struggle and she fought against her own rage with difficulty. She wished she'd never been pregnant, then admonished herself for that wish. She should be happy. She was lucky. The baby was healthy and beautiful. But it had taken everything, and she was such a terrible mother, such an ugly, terrible person. She didn't deserve the baby or the partner. She went on with things because what else could she do? She found herself looking forward to seeing the Greek lady, enjoying their short exchanges and the feeling of connection and unsaid connectedness. She smiled with genuine happiness when she spoke to the fruit shop ladies and enjoyed being a tiny part of their world while she did what needed to be done, 
and slowly turned her life into something she could understand. The mother of three knows what the young mother knew in those moments, that these acts of kindnesses, genuinely meant and freely given, became lifeblood to her then. A lighthouse shining through the fog in a sea of unhappiness. The mother of three knows how very unkind the young mother was to herself. And if she could go back in time, she'd knock on the young mother's door and take the baby for a while so the young mother could sleep. So much of what she needed might have been restored then. The mother of three would hold the young mother and giggle with her about the absurd idea of play school parenting. All craft and games, but no children allowed on the set. She'd tell her to just have that glass of wine. She'd tell the young mother she didn't have to be perfect. The mother of three knows that the young mother would have a thousand more quiet coffees with her calm, loving and reassuring husband. She knows she misses seeing the fruit lady since the shop changed management, but still looks forward to seeing the Greek lady, still wiry, still full of unexplainable energy. But these days, they hold each other's arm briefly as they say goodbye. The mother of three has finally learnt the importance of being kind to herself. I'm going to finish my story with something that's heavily borrowed from Facebook shares and quotable quotes. Kindness is free. Sprinkle that shit like confetti. <laughs> Great advice from Jan Zeven, and there are several stories from Adelaide scattered among our 100 podcasts, so look them up at the website, 10by9.com, or Apple Podcasts, Stroke iTunes, or Spotify. And finally, here's 10 by 9 regular Helen McClements with another Once When I Was Young story. Once when I was young, I had a dream. A dream that I would go to my upper sixth formal, swelled and glamorous, with a boyfriend in the floor. For seven years, the formal had been at the back of my mind. The formal was when you shrugged off that bright blue uniform and emerged, radiant to show your peers and teachers that you were more than just a nerdy teen. I was most disappointed that one of my teachers couldn't go, as she had booked a Danny O'Donnell concert for the same night. <laughs> Most unfair, I thought. Everybody made an effort for this, even those of us who hung around church all weekend in their knee jeans from the factory shop in Newtonards and Fruit of the Loom sweatshirts. Girls who never dressed up were rendered unrecognisable with glossy locks and shimmery lipstick. And of course, they all had boyfriends. I rarely had a boyfriend. And then, miracle of miracles, I managed to find myself a sort of boyfriend. He'd recently been dumped and needed a diversion. <laughs> and I was anxious to fill that role. Because one, he was a bit of a dish. And two, it was Christmas and the formal was in February and I just had to hold on to him until then. <laughs> formal fever took hold. 
We took the train to Belfast, going to Delaney's for lasagna and chips and a sneaky bottle of Matthias Rosé. Trips to Belfast were a new thing, and not something I did on a whim, lest I be blown up or shot. It was 1997, so that was still a real possibility. The mere mention of going to Belfast, and my grandmother would say in a somber tone, watch out for the bombs. In fairness, she had lived through the blitz, hiding onto the kitchen table while the roof crumbled above her. She probably had PTSD. However, I was willing to risk losing a limb if it meant getting a nice dress. <laughs> In those days, few people spent hundreds on a formal attire. We ogled dresses from Kukai and Monsoon, though items in Topshop were more our price range. I bought a red satin dress in principles for £35, with a coil neckline and spaghetti straps. Inevitably, another girl wore the same dress on the night, cheeky bitch. <laughs> but we resolutely avoided each other. In the preceding weeks, I was in shocking humour as I tried to diet, ditching my after-school snack of four slices of white toast with real butter and homemade raspberry jam. Sometimes I have a slice of Cadbury's chocolate roll to finish, or a slab of my grandmother's cake. Oddly, the way it dropped off, I didn't have to resort to laxatives. A friend gave me makeup tips, and I booked an updo, an updo with Michael Conroy in High Street. Then, disaster struck. One of our friends was let down by her date. Never the most proactive, it had to be said. She left it up to us to find her another, with two days to go. At the time, the principal's son was doing a bit of janitor work in the school. He was a smiley sort of a fellow, so I asked if he'd like to be her date for the evening. He said he would. Phew, we all sighed. Then, my date announced that he might not make it after all. Our formal was on a Wednesday and he worked in Dublin. Previously, it had felt like the height of sophistication, having a graphic designer sort of boyfriend who worked in Dublin, but that feeling soon dissipated when this news broke. Much to my embarrassment, I recall asking if there were any flights between Dublin and Belfast. <laughs> That, I thought, would be quite James Bondish with him jetting in for the occasion. There weren't, but he made it with just enough time to look smug and self-satisfied in a photo with the air of someone who was doing me a terrific favour. The actual event at the Cologne was probably the biggest disappointment of my life to date. <laughs> we were served platefuls of dried up turkey, most of which was scraped directly into the bin. The band was mediocre, and there was, to me anyway, a sense of acute letdown. The real anticlimax, however, was the after-formal. The organising commitment had, in an act of either madness or desperation, booked the sea cat for this. <laughs> it was sold to us as an excellent option, as the bar was open all night. There was the promise of live music. God help anyone taking the journey for real that night, with about a hundred kids in formal attire lurching about from excess rain or the rhythm of the waves. The live music was one disconsolate chap on a keyboard. 
His eyes more an expression of utter defeat, as indeed they would if your career trajectory had led you to hear. Playing <laughs> sweet Caroline to a bunch of pissed six-formers. <laughs> the janitor ditched my friend for another girl at the sea camp terminal before we even set sail. <laughs> which meant that she sent the whole crossing to Scotland and back, crying inconsolably. Sort of boyfriend and I broke up shortly afterwards. Don't worry, said my mum. There will be other forms. I never want to hear of another bastard form again. I replied, all evangelical Christianity abandoned at that point. But six years later, there I was again this time as a teacher in Bloomfield Collegiate. Back to North Down we went, and this time to Pantyboy Lodge. I had an actual boyfriend this time, called Dono, but he was a doctor, and he was up doing doctory things that night in Coleraine. I missed Dono. I wish he could have seen me in my nice dress. And this formal was even more tedious than the first formal. It wasn't so much no crack, as minus crack. It was a crack vacuum. I took to the drink, and suddenly the band seemed to improve. I walked about a bit and metamorphosized into Miss McClements, the young, cool teacher. I was given a stacks on the dance floor. Of course, I took the shot a student offered. Ruby red in colour, it tasted innocuous enough until the Tabasco hit the back of my throat. Little fucker. I wished and ran to the bathroom. If toilets could talk, this one would have run the Samaritans. <laughs> Up came the shot, the wine, and all the dinner. My eyes were streaming, my throat was burning, and a small crowd gathered outside the cubicle. <laughs> Are you okay, miss? They asked, genuinely concerned. Oh, I'm absolutely fine, I chirped, adopting the cadences of the locale as though that was going to detract from the state I was in. My dad had kindly agreed to pick me and two other teachers up when festivities were over. I ran home. Can you come early? I bleated. I am most unwell. <laughs> I hid in the toilets before attempting to emerge discreetly. I didn't manage that. My friends were in fine trouble by now and nonplussed at being told they had to leave. It was 10 o'clock. <laughs> My dad will be here soon, I said. <laughs> and there he was in his anorak. Marching purposefully across the dance floor. <laughs> Pure raging was too. Into the car, he said. I was a dishevelled mess with mascara all down my face. What am I going to tell Donal? I wept. Donal was a committed pioneer. He didn't get pissed at formals or anywhere else. You say nothing, snapped my dad. You're not a Catholic. You don't have to confess anything. <laughs> I will urge my children, when their time comes, 
tearful wake of the whole formal pantomime. Nine years ago, I did, however, squeeze into the same principal's gown and attend another formal in the storm, this time with the husband. It too was shite. <laughs> I'm sorry for dragging you to this, I whispered as we left early to hit the airport. It was totally worth it to see you in that frock, he said. I wish I could have shared that moment with 17 year old me. She would have loved it. Oh, Helen. Okay, that's it from our 100th 10 by 9 podcast. We never for a second thought we would reach this milestone when we started out, but that's the joy of 10 by 9 Thanks to everyone who's helped us, whether telling stories or listening. If you enjoy the podcast, spread the word. And if you can, give us a rating or even a review at Apple Podcasts. We'd be very grateful. It helps get us noticed. As I said earlier, we've lots coming up over the summer, so check the website for details, 10by9.com, or look us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our theme music comes from the Free Music Archive and is by Fantastic Swimmers, while our incidental music is by Brent Bourgeois, and we got that at Facebook Sounds. For now, bye-bye.